there are two reasons to listen to me. <laughs> um, one of which is totally selfish. You want a better body. You want to be healthier. You don't want to have diabetes. Read this book, follow these things. And I, and I pretty much guarantee you, you will, you will lead a healthier life, which will mean fewer medical interventions. And I guarantee you, having been at the sharp end of the research of this, you do not want more medical interventions in your life. That is our amazing guest, Dr. Cassandra Coburn, speaking. And yeah, what she's talking about there is what we're going to be getting into, uh, how you can eat in a way that is sustainable for you and also for the planet. And this is stuff which I have heard a load about before, but I'm a real food muncher. I'm a bit of a glutton. And despite knowing that things should change, I've never really sort of quite put it into action. But... This conversation has made me uh, decide to go and change how I eat and even my relationship to food. What a promise. And uh, it's worth no noting that like, I haven't actually done shopping since making that decision. So I still really you know, haven't yet put that change into action. But I will. I will. Uh, because, yeah, the way we're eating is having disastrous effects on the planet and then also societies just due to uh, you know, the unhealthiness of food. And before we dive in, I'm just going to say that one of the first things we speak about is uh, obesity. And I want to make sure that everyone knows that the conversation we're having is about the uh, scientific evidence behind it. There is obviously no judgment of anyone in any shape at any time. And that should come across in the conversation, but I want to come it to come across here as well because it's important that everyone feels included. So uh, I'm going to get out of the way very soon so that you can have it. Uh, this conversation. Uh, just going to say one thing, and that is to remind you that the Lifefulness Project. We've got this great podcast, but you know this is really the seed from which a community grows, and so we've got these amazing small groups and these small groups what we're doing is we're bringing people together online but then we're going to bring people together in person and then when you've got lots of these small groups together we're then going to go and create communities so like we are not just talking about community not just talking about making change you know this is uh, us supporting that and making it happen so if you want to find out more go into the show notes go to lifeonness.io and i will go and get out of your way so you can hear the amazing Dr. Cassandra Coburn, geneticist, author, and loads and loads of fun. Here she is. Uh, welcome to the Life on This podcast. Uh, it's it's I, Sanderson, my co-host. James. Hey, everybody. And our wonderful guest, Dr. Cassandra Coburn. How's it going, Cassandra? All the better for being on this podcast with you. That's very good. You have written a book. Well done. Uh, and it is all about uh, how to eat so that the planet doesn't die. Well, Shadow, I'm just going to go in. I'm going to junk our normal questions. Say, why, like, what got you into this, like, food? What made you want to go and write about this thing in particular? Super great question. So, oh, what? Uh, it's not She's my... so complimentary, James. <laughs> this is like literally the first thing I've I'm done. I'm loving this. Actually, but she was nice complimentary because... about when she came online. I was singing. So, Cassandra, you're nailing it as a guest. Take it away. And his singing was awful, so it's clear that that's Cassandra's only, got you haven't heard complimentary my lying down. Yeah, that, no, you haven't heard my singing, that's why. No, but it's an interesting question, and it's not one that people ask me generally, because it's not my background. My background is, um, I'm a geneticist um, and a science editor by background, um, and I uh, kind of got into this more by chance than anything else. So um, my day job is I'm the editor-in-chief of the Lancet Health and Longevity, which is uh, if you know The Lancet, it's a huge sort of medical publication, been going for a couple of hundred years, um, very eminent, very, very clinically focused. The Lancet Health and Longevity is a new title, which I started last year. But prior to that, I was at The Lancet um, in the world of oncology. So cancer, very, very different. And I left for a couple of years to, you know, sort of quote unquote, find myself slash kind of indulge myself in terms of writing, which has always been my passion, especially with science communication. And just after I left, they published this thing called um, the Eat uh, Lancet Commission, which was looking at, um, was basically answer, trying to answer the question, how can we feed 
ourselves, ourselves being the 9 billion people that live on Earth, or 8 billion people. Not just the editors. Not just the editors. Not just, yeah. Chinese? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Chinese always goes, goes down well, to be honest, pizza, gin. Um, but how can we feed you know, the world sustainably and healthily? Because there are two, there are two big problems here, right? The first is not just um, how do we eat sustainably? Because that, and that in itself is a real difficulty. But the other big question is the fact that um, most of the food that we eat is driving the incidence um, of non-communicable diseases. So that's you know the opposite of COVID. That's cancer, diabetes, you know anything that you develop generally with time. Um, and you know doctors kind of go a bit sympathetically. They kind of look well, ah, diet and exercise, you know that kind of thing. And we we it doesn't have the headline grabbing appeal of something like COVID, um, but it's insidious and it's rising and it's killing us. And that's mainly because of the food that we eat. So how can we ensure that there's food? for everyone on the planet, and that that food is going to be something that actually contributes to our health rather than detracting from it. Yeah, sorry, you were, <laughs> I can see you're about to dive into something. What were you going to say? Uh, over Zoom, you just saw my big, I've got a question to ask face, even though yeah. in the chat, I said to James, you do a, our normal first question first, but <laughs> you mentioned something which I just really want you to clarify and get on record because I've heard it from many people that this is the case. Obesity is bad for you, right? I mean, yes. There's an amazing amount of people online who say, oh no, obesity isn't bad. Who There, there was the, the cancer, British Cancer Institute or someone cancery had these uh, ads which said obesity kills and it went online and it was like, oh, this is fat shaming. In fact, it's, you can I mean, be healthy and big. And I know people who work in public health. I know people who work in helping. I literally know people who are like health coaches and you speak to them, they're like, no, this is obvious. And yet on the internet, there's, this sort of public conspiracy that it's totally fine. I think I think it's a really complicated question because um, it's tied up with issues about BMI. BMI is a kind of stupid measure because you, you know this; it doesn't take into account muscle mass and stuff. So you can have Do you someone want to explain who's... what BMI is. Sorry, so that's the body mass index. I can't quite remember how you calculate it. I think it's your height squared divided by your weight squared, or the other way around. It's a, it's a, it's some kind of semi-artificial measure. It's to measure body density, basically. So it's like, if you've got a really high BMI, well, it's one of two things, either your body's very, very dense full of muscle or you're extremely fat. And, they, and, and the BMI can't kind of tell the difference between the two. So it's a really silly measure, but it's, a, but it's a measure because just knowing your weight doesn't take into account your height. So you could be, you know, you're 50 kilos and really short, that's okay. If you're 50 kilos and really tall, then you're, re you know, you're really, really skinny. And the thing about obesity is there are various there are various conversations around it. Some people say it is in itself a disease in its own right. Others say it's a precursor. But generally speaking, obesity is a problem because it influences a lot of the way that we process food. Um, if you've got a lot of fat cells, um, it kind of messes up your insulin regulation quite often. I'm, I'm really oversimplifying to the point where mm. it's almost wrong, but it, it plays havoc with your metabolism, essentially. So it's that plus it just puts a lot of extra pressure on your body. You have to carry more. You're, you've got fat deposits around, it's called visceral fat. So it's around your organs and stuff. Just literally makes your body, it's harder for your body to function. That doesn't mean that if you're a little bit overweight, you're like some terribly unhealthy person who's going to die instantly. And I think that's where people get confused and, and understandably frustrated because they see the equation of just being mildly overweight with like some sort of prophecy of death. And that's totally unfair. But generally speaking, as a rule of thumb, being overweight and tending towards obesity is going to negatively impact your health without question. I'm gonna jump uh, uh, this question to James because I don't know if you've seen social justice Twitter because it is a sort of meme which gets circulated in certain activist circles. And it's not only about BMI, people have already taken BMI off the scales. It is about like, there's folk who say actually being obese isn't even bad for you. And I don't know, have you seen this sort of thing on, are you ever on fat Twitter? This is a really interesting question for me because, um, even though it wasn't necessarily for me, um, because, <laughs> because I've been looking at fat Twitter and trying to reconcile, trying to figure out what I think about it. It's actually on the called one hand, Big Boned Twitter. Thank you very much. <laughs> you said fat Twitter. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, um, because I'm all for people feeling comfortable in their bodies. And I really think that's more important than anything else. I think disordered eating is on the rise and driven by social media. Um, but I do think that there has to be 
perhaps there has to be an acceptance that you can be kind of how, whatever size you want to be and you can be comfortable in it. But an understanding that if you are going to be a certain size, that will, generally speaking, have negative repercussions for your health. And you sort of leave it there. I think the way you put that is really sensitive because the thing that I see is people responding to what you said, the assumption that being a little bit overweight is at the root of all your health problems, right? Which is attached to the social stigma that people who aren't skinny or really fit receive all the time. And in the attempt to push back against the social stigma, which I think we all should do, um, it gets tangled up with this question of what is the science actually saying? And I think you mentioned too, there's a lot of bad science or bad pseudoscience oh, about yeah. diets, about weight, about health, like BMI, like, you know, I think a lot of people who are overweight have been subjected to a lot of pseudoscience, a lot of shaming from their healthcare providers. That's definitely true in the United States. And so I, I'm quite sympathetic to the desire of people to say, wait a minute, let's not assume that everything is to do about with about how big we are or that it's not a sign of being lazy. It's not a sign of being, you know, um, unhealthy in a broader sense. And at the same time, I think it's obviously important that we respect what the science is actually telling us. I think that's the part where in this conversation, and this is not at all the point of the podcast, but I'm liking it, is that I think it's really hard on Twitter to even say that, for instance, in this discussion that seems to be taking place, actually obesity is a huge problem. And it's not only a problem like for individuals who are there. And this is like, you can be fat and there are gorgeous people who are fat and there are, there's nothing to be uh, ashamed of for it, but there is not only an individual risk to health, but also a systemic risk to health in terms of the demands on various health services. I think that's true. Yeah, I think this is the thing. And I think risk is the word here. I think that being but tending towards overweight raises your risk of other diseases, which will then kind of, again, negatively affect your quality of life. And as you say, place a burden when seen as a, as a sum total on society as a whole. And that's, that's kind of to, to sort of nudge it gently back to what I was saying in the book, not because I'm trying to pro promo it, but in the, in the sense of- Promo um, away, <laughs> No, no, I hate promo. <laughs> I, I like discussing, I hate promo. Um, because one of the things that really struck me as I was writing it was how directly that is linked to processed food eating. They, they did this incredible study where they got, um, they got volunteers, healthy volunteers, um, and they fed them a diet um, that was ex two diets that were exactly matched in terms of carbohydrates, protein, like all of the building blocks of our of our food intake, right? And the only difference was that one was a heavily processed diet, and the other was not. So they, they they're calorically so sorry in terms of calories they're exactly the same, and in terms of like the macronutrients they're exactly the same. It's just the the way in which they've knitted them together essentially. Um, and they used um, these people as their own controls. So you would be fed diet A for a couple of days, and then you swap, and then you go to diet B. Oh, that's really interesting. Nice, it's a really nice way of doing it, right? So it's like you compare yourself because people metabolize stuff differently. And what they found that was super interesting for me was when you ate the processed food diet you everyone pretty reliably put on like a couple of kilos and as soon as you switched to the other diet they lost that again it basically shows that the way that we when we take in like heavily processed food and there's a whole scale of processing it and, and in this case by processed i mean you couldn't make it at home if you tried you do not have the machinery <laughs> you know your blender is not going to cut it with this you need a phd to make this pizza you need a PhD and a factory, you know, um, and a lot of funding. Um, and, and that's the level of processing I'm talking about. I'm not talking about like, you know, white bread. I'm talking about like significant, I'm talking about white bread that will stay perfect for like years. That's the kind of processing. Post-nuclear holocaust, there are cockroaches exactly. and a slice of King's Mill or a different brand, which is, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exists. I was oh, going to say something. <laughs> I forget I'm not on a public broadcaster and no one gives a shit. Uh, it's definitely Kingsmill. Yeah. Oh, we're going to lose our sponsorship with Kingsmill, Sanderson. Oh. Be careful what you say about their delicious, fluffy, perfectly preserved white bread. Exactly. Well, it's a great endorsement, right? If you want bread that's always ready, always fluffy, always white. Um, but but, the, but so, so anyway, the reason why I'm making this elaborate point is you've got 
it's to, so it's kind of to do with how people eat and that's part of the problem because processed food tends to be cheaper so often there's all and that's why i think there's so much complexity and stigma tied into being overweight because i know that i personally I lost a ton of weight during lockdown one because there were no restaurants available to me. So we just cooked and ate everything at home. And Cassandra, boom. are you okay? Do Am you, I okay? You, you, with that whole lack of restaurants thing, were you, have you been able to pull through this really oh, quite hard. traumatic situation? It's been hard. It's been hard, oh. but it's, it's okay now. Like, like, you know, Dishoom opened a delivery service. Everything's all right again. <laughs> you, you, you just had to get your own water and, it, it wasn't <laughs> yeah, a, an array of choices. It was oh, yeah, so yeah. hard. It was so hard. <laughs> you know, I really, you know, hashtag real suffering there. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, but I noticed it because like before, you know, I'm, I'm lucky enough to be able to afford to eat out on a semi-regular basis. It's something I love doing. And so I noticed it in lockdown, like I lost this weight because it was just, we were just cooking at home and we weren't, but I joined the baking revolution along with everyone else. And it was just cake because that was the only real source of happiness. And uh, I still lost weight. And I think it's to do with the availability of, of processed food, essentially. So if you're someone who uh, has to, works two jobs, has, struggles to get like food on the table, you know, you, what, what are you going to choose? You're going to choose a burger, which is warm and, and it makes you feel good. Or you're going to be like, yeah, I'd really like to, you know, slow cook some, slow cook some beans and, you know, people aren't going to do it. And I, I have complete respect for that. And I think that's where this, this issue comes in. It's just like, it's not just quote unquote fat shaming it's lifestyle shaming and that's really hard and, and i totally and i for one is like i totally agree with all of those things food deserts yeah you know stress uh the environment you're in cortisol makes you take bad decisions it is not at all an individual's fault that this happens uh except for james sometimes he really goes to town on it but the uh <laughs> <laughs> but it is like it's so odd how that complexity almost it, it can seem like there's like almost a public conspiracy theory where the science of it impolite to say it and there are a number of people who have got you know who've got a book or whatever they can point to a paper which will show that in fact it's you know someone can be way whatever and still be healthier than a skinny person or whatever it might be but that is not at all the point of your book the point <laughs> of your book is you're uh, trying to get cassandra into trouble she's our <laughs> guest and now you've spoken about a very controversial and difficult issue yeah uh, <laughs> outrageous is the the food choices which are you know decimating the planet we thought it'd be great if you could just go through like some of the key things in terms of like you you go through food group by food group uh i don't know whether there's one that you want to pick first as the sort of like your guide to see what i loved about it is at the start of the chapter even gives you a handy how much you should eat of each thing so pick a food group i might i might take a step back if that's okay just to kind of put it into context a little you're bit you're such a good science communicator <laughs> Very yeah thank, thank thank god i found my calling right um to just talk about science endlessly. So um, this, this commission that I mentioned, this Eat Lancet Commission, they're, they're trying to figure out how to do this, how to ensure that we can all eat sustainably and healthily. And what they actually came up with was something called the planetary health diet. And the planetary health diet is, as you say, a series of recommendations for, for different food groups and quantities thereof. Uh, and it's, it's not prescriptive in the sense, you know, sometimes you look at like a diet and it says, okay, Monday's, you know, avocado on toast. Tuesday is, you know, <laughs> chicken. I, I mean, I don't know. I don't read these books. But I, you know, I would if they recommended avocado on toast, clearly. Um, but, well, you know, whatever they, whatever they recommend. But it goes instead by macronutrient on the basis that it should be applicable anywhere in the world. So you should be able to follow this diet if you live in, you know, Uruguay, if you live in Japan, if, you know, if you, if you live in Tanzania, you should be able to apply this to how you eat. Um, so that's the one consideration that they were uh, taking into account. The other is um, a kind of complex idea called the planetary boundaries. So we all know about one of them, which is climate change, right? So this is this idea that we're, uh, we're changing the climate because we're pumping uh, carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases into the environment, and that is warming the planet and that's changing our climate. Very complicated, uh, very bad. Unfortunately for us, that's one of them. So really there are um, nine planetary boundaries of which six are directly affected by food. Um, and for, for listeners listening at home, I've just got some faces kind of with the eyes widening going, oh, God, <laughs> we're <laughs> this screwed. Looks, yeah, this is all terrible. And it kind of is, is the, is the problem. Um, 
because food, well, our actions are directly affecting most of these. And the way that we create our food is affecting quite a lot of them. So they include things like land, land use change, um, applying fertilizer, which changes the kind of biogeochemical flows in the world. So uh, fertilizer has a lot of phosphate and nit nitrogen in it, which doesn't occur very often naturally. So by applying them to grow our crops, we're kind of flooding the world with these chemicals and that has repercussions down the line. Um, what are the other planetary boundaries? My, oh, water, fresh water flow. I should know all of these. Land use change, <laughs> biodiversity, right? So, they, so these are all these all affect them. So the reason I the reason I kind of went food by, food group by food group, it was a bit of a crude measure to kind of attempt to artificially tie one food group to one planetary boundary, just so that we can because it's really difficult. If I say to you know if I say to you yeah you really need to think about your biogeochemical flow you know, impact, you kind of go. Uh, I know exactly uh, what you're talking about. Exactly. Though. All right, then. <laughs> you know, what? <laughs> so it was really an attempt to get people to try and understand, like with one example, how the food that they eat impacts stuff that they may not have considered before. Um, and of course, the biggest one of all of these things is meat, that, like, which everyone knows, right? Um, but meat is not something that we need to worry about because of the climate change heading that people think about. So people tend to think about cows farting because they fart out a lot of methane and methane is a very potent greenhouse gas. That's not actually the case. The problem is feeding cows and animals because in creating the, the space that we need to feed them, we are just ripping into the, nat the, the natural environment. And this is called land use change. So this is where you have you know, forests or grassland or whatever, and we just decimate it to either create food for, for the animals or to, or, or, to, or to have the animals grow there themselves. And that's, that's, like the, that's kind of what's driving um, a, a lot of the problems. So just to make sure I understand what you're saying, it's more the destruction of areas of land in order to grow the stuff necessary to feed the animals that we then eat that is the problem than yeah. the animals themselves okay it's a semi-simplification because it's not fair to say if we were to completely stop feeding animals we could then grow loads of crops in that space and you know and people do make that argument like if we cut out the middleman or the, the middle cow um we would have a lot we would <laughs> have a lot earth? <laughs> the middle earth yeah the, the creamy filling of an oreo whatever middle you feel like no um it doesn't it, it's not quite equivalent to say that so for example in wales you, you know, you have a lot of lamb and sheep growing and they, they grow by eating grass on rocky hillsides that we wouldn't have access to. We wouldn't be able to grow crops there. So it's not like a one-to-one, -one, we could suddenly use all this land for other purposes. Exactly. It's not, it's not quite that. The problem is the destruction in itself. So if you think about like um, taking a wilderness area and converting that into farmers, uh, farm, farm areas. So the example I use in the book is uh, the Cerrado uh, area which is sort of a, a large grassland in, in sort of straddles uh, Brazil and Paraguay. Um, it's sort of south of the Amazon, I think. My geography is terrible. It's near the Amazon. Um, and it's just and north of the Amazon. Maybe, it, maybe it's north of the Amazon. It's near no, the no, Amazon. No, no, it would be hard to be north of the Amazon just because of geography. And You see, this is, yeah, this yeah, is why okay. I do science and not geography. <laughs> I can tell you it's in South America. And okay, you're nailing stop. it. South of the Amazon. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Some, somewhere there. Um, and, they're ba and, and that's basically being destroyed. It's being destroyed for soy farming, which in itself is then turned into a, um, a protein feed for, uh, well, it's exported everywhere, for, to China for pork farming, uh, for, for Europe to chicken, for chicken feed and so on. Um, and the problem is that as you uproot these uh, existing grasslands and forests, you release so much carbon into the atmosphere because the soils themselves contain carbon, the area that you're burning, the plant matter that you're burning contains carbon, and you mess up all of the kind of weather patterns around there. So where you have a forest, which has its own extremely complex system of like dealing with water, water is released from the forest and moved around and taken in by the forest, and suddenly you've got nothing. So it causes simultaneously drought and floods, which is just great. Um, because it it messes up with all of, with all the balance, and that doesn't seem it. fair somehow. Yeah, no, it seems like you should only get one going. or the other from one causal. Precisely, thing. precisely. So it's Being it's a constipated it's a whole and mess. having diarrhea. You're like this is. I thought <laughs> is this even, was an. Is that well, no, I mean possible? that's what I'm saying. It would. Yeah, it seems like that. You're like I thought this was an either or sitch. Yeah. Uh, no, getting both. Yeah. 
it's genuinely a shit situation in that example. Yeah. Uh, you know? <laughs> Thanks. Um, so, okay, so, so, that's, so that's an example of how, um, that's just one example of how food production, and it's, 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 it's unbelievably complicated. Like, as I was trying to figure this out in order to explain it, I, I, many times I thought I couldn't because it's so many things feed into, haha, pun, pun not intended, feed into each other. But the thing that's interesting about what these incredible scientists have done, and I don't claim to, I have no claim on their findings. I'm just trying to communicate them and make it accessible. Is they figure out if we adjust our diet, our diet roughly in the manner that they recommend, we should be able to keep ourselves within these planetary boundaries. And so, well, some of them we've already exceeded and we don't really know what the outcomes of that are gonna be. But generally speaking, it should minimize um, any, unknown untoward effects that, that are over the horizon that we can't predict yet. And when you say if we change our diet, do you mean every human being on Earth? That is the idea, yes. So that's the part where I start thinking, how do we actually do this? Because I, I'm thinking about these ideas. And I'm like, yes, we should totally do this, save the planet, save ourselves. This is great. And then I'm thinking this is never going to happen because <laughs> everyone is not going to do all these things. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And 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 you're you're totally correct. Like, I don't think I I mean, much as I would love it if everyone on Earth bought a copy of my book. Somehow, I don't think that's going to be the case. Can you um, imagine what your publisher like the world <laughs> which word it's like see, this book has really taken off it's enough by cassandra but it really has taken off and 7.6 billion copies have been sold <laughs> and it's and yet still people have read it and they're still and, eating the same old shit yeah. <laughs> because you you like meat is so tasty I mean, meat is very tasty and I'm not, I'm not a vegan. I make no pretense of this in the book. Like I, you know, my, my favorite meal is steak and red wine and very, very thinly cut fries. And all of which I say is, is a bad idea or well, not the wine, the wine. I didn't, I didn't, because the diet doesn't talk about things like wine and coffee. I didn't mention it. Um, although they, ha they have problems of their own, but um, what I'm advocating in the book is something. So first of all, there is, there is hope in the strange sense. So because it's a, diet for everyone in the world there's a little bit of a loophole which is not everyone in the world eats as well as we do uh in the west essentially so what we're here it, it, by by relinquishing our proportion of steak and chips we're essentially giving that over to parts of the world that cannot yet afford it so there is that one element to it such that it, even if we if we eat half of what we currently eat that's still making a huge reduction and might make enough, be enough for, for, for the whole. But the second thing is that I don't believe that we can all make all of these changes as recommended. I think that's um, untenable for a variety of reasons, for a start, for health reasons. If you're anemic, uh, you probably can't eat, you probably can't drop the, uh, the, the amount of red meat that you eat to the, to the levels I recommend. And equally, if you're a bodybuilder, no amount of soy protein in, in the world is probably going to be sufficient. Although I have heard about vegan bodybuilders, but it's, you know, it has to be, you know, adjusted to yourself. But what matters to me more than that is just having the awareness. And I think that's, you know, it's kind of this idea, there's this idea of mindful eating and it's more just the next time you're in a rush at lunchtime and you go to a shop and there's, there are a couple of choices of sandwich you don't automatically pick up the chicken one. You don't, you don't treat each sandwich as equal. And I'm hoping that the more that we do this, the more people do tend towards the vegetarian or vegan options, um, the more we can drive consumer preferences and thus start to change you know, how big, big firms you know, market, produce, advocate, and so on. I don't know if this is gonna happen, but I think we're seeing it already. I think it's a rising tide. And James and I, before we got on the call, we were really, because you know, we've had this, we're in the business of trying to help folk, you know, make good decisions in their lives and know how hard it is, like in our own as well. And that's why then imagining the whole world putting, uh, hitting the handbrake and uh, doing the 180 is hard to imagine. But we got to talking, thought that actually there are religions and sort of religion religious movements have got like really good track records of making diets change. 
and that it can end up not seeming like totally crazy. Like there are uh, billions of people who do not eat beef, who do not eat pork, who look at pork as something utterly vile uh, and would look at the uh, big casserole that I cooked with uh, super simple. You just get pork belly, very cheap cut, marinate it. And then all you do is you just cook it over sweet potatoes, pe peppers, aubergines for about six hours. Everything is juicy. The onions at the bottom caramelized. But there would be even a lot of Muslims who wouldn't be tempted by that, which, you know, is crazy because it was so delicious. Uh, and, <laughs> for, the, for the record, I do not endorse this casserole. <laughs> uh, I knew, I, I, the pig is actually was my pet. Uh, and uh, the... Yeah, but there's something in religions which sort of allows people to go and change it. And it's maybe not, there'll be lots of people who listen to this, most people who aren't religious, but there's something about these sorts of movements which enable people to change their diet. James, what's the, like, what would you say uh, is, the, is the key to this? Like, how does that process come about that, you know, people are able to look at food so differently? That is a really interesting question. I mean, we were talking, weren't we, about how there are so many food codes, including restrictions on what you can eat, that people really do follow if it's part of their religious tradition. And that is not the, the kind of secular world, for the most part, is not so good at encouraging people to make that sort of change in their lives. But religions do seem to be able to do it. And I wonder what it, whether it's making it part of a bigger story of saying this isn't just important for your health, but it's important. I mean, it's difficult to imagine a bigger story than save the planet. right? But there's something about the motivational structure of a religion where it's ritualized, where it's something that people do together as part of a community. I don't know. I'm trying to grope through this because I'm not sure exactly what it is that makes people um I, well it's the, a, yeah it's it's about it's it's two things isn't it with you know it's inclusivity and it's and it's differentiating between in and out groups so you know we we understand we follow these these codes you don't you're a heathen outsider um i think because and that that brings people together you know quite quite genuinely it's one of the ways that the communities form religion has such and I, you know i i've looked into the podcast and you know i'm personally an atheist um, as well, but I have great, as you guys do, have great respect for the movements of, of religion and and what it, and what what being motivated by a purpose beyond your own immediate uh, needs and desires can do. I do feel like that that this idea of um, sa saving you know saving the planet it's like the sort of moniker that people espouse all the time, right? Save the planet, save the planet. But there is somewhere in there there is a sort of sense of greater purpose, um, which I feel like. So now if I eat meat more often than I recommend in the book, which is, which actually I have to be honest. Which is most this, days. Most, it's, no, it's not. Yes. Thank God. That would which make me feel really. Most no, no. meal times and also all of my stacks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I just keep, I just keep dried bacon on the side, just, you know, crunch through it. Um, uh, you no, are but American, yes. <laughs> um, but uh, during the sort of second lockdown, um, I, I found it much harder to have that, to, to have that buy-in. And I suspect it's partly because we were isolated. Um, and during second lockdown, you are, you kind of, it, it felt like the world became a bit more of a microcosm of your, your own day-to-day -day existence. You kind, of, you kind of forgot how to connect with people. And I'm finding as I reconnect with the world, as I'm allowed to go out and see people again, my eating habits are naturally transitioning back to what they were before, where I eat meat much less regularly. Um, well, I, I try and eat as I recommend. Um, and I'm finding that it's much, much easier to do that in in this more connected world so there might be something there i definitely agree with you i thought of a different movement that has really gone and changed how people eat and it's all the fucking diet movements there we were trying to think of like how you can go and change minds but the you know orthorexia that mm. thing which is clean eating where suddenly people are uh, essentially getting themselves into near you know, disordered eating, anorexic states or something very similar by creating diets which are so restrictive that they, you know, do not have near enough calories or other things, but they have got very hard rules on eating white what foods. What is healthy? 
and green food. And so in a way, we've got to have the people who uh, have made really shit diets so successful to just really bang the drum for your book. And then maybe 7.6 billion copies isn't out of the question. <laughs> but that makes me think of something really important, which is that it seems to me there's something really different about your book than many. It's not a fad diet, right? It's scientifically mm. based. And that was something that I appreciated because isn't it the case that a lot of writing in this space is based on very flimsy kind of pseudoscientific yeah, bullshit? Yeah, you can... You can kind of, yeah, I mean, I would hate to put about a bad word about my competitors, but <laughs> <laughs> um, no, you've, you've just taken out a list, which is like really long. And yeah, when no, you picked it up, <laughs> ignore when you the pick... rustling. Can you hear me over the rustling? <laughs> when you picked it up, it suddenly dropped down really low, <laughs> even further. And it's like a scroll. Weird that so you've weird. got it on there. Um, but the, 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 the part of the problem with the science around food is we still don't understand a huge amount about it. So you can kind of, if you are, if you are semi-scientifically literate and reasonably immoral, you can pretty much make the data say whatever the hell you want to say. Also, there's a huge variety of what can constitute a healthy diet. You know, you can eat basically a lot of, you can subsist mainly of meat and animal products. You can be vegan. You can be something in between. You can probably just eat carbohydrates, you know, refined carbohydrates and be relatively healthy. It depends so much on your individual metabolism as well. And people respond really well to anecdotes, right? You know, oh, I know someone who had the soup diet and they lost whatever, and now they glow with ethereal glow at all times. And it's <laughs> Is that they, true? No. Oh, <laughs> the ethereal, I was excited for a moment there. I, I should, wanted that glow. That should be the second book, The Ethereal Soup Diet. Um, you know, but this is, and this is the thing, like we can make the data say whatever it is really that we want to say. We can have an agenda with it. The reason why I like, well, obviously I believe what I'm doing is correct, but the reason I like that is because I have absolutely nothing to gain from it. And it was not research done by me. <laughs> it was really, you know, it's a completely separate independent thing, which I said about trying to explain because I was reading it and I could just about understand it. And this is literally what I do with my life. So if I, I saw if only I could just about understand this, people who, are, who don't do this on a regular basis will just have no shot. So I really wanted to make it accessible in that way. Um, but I have no stake, I have no skin in this game. It doesn't matter to me. I mean, it would be great if people read it and take these messages home and change what they do. But um, I guess the, the skin in the game that I have is I grew up in South Africa um, and in a beautiful environment. And I kind of got to experience firsthand uh, on a very regular basis, the sort of biodiversity that most people only get to visit once a, a lifetime. And um, that made a huge impact on me. I grew up reading Gerald Durrell, watching David Attenborough, all these kind of conservationists. And I, I think I always, that's always been something that's really, really important to me. So when I realized that this is my way of making a contribution towards that and potentially stopping some of the destruction that we see, I really wanted to go for it. But that's it, you know, that that's, that's all that, and that's why it matters to me, I think. I think that uh, is speaks to something else, which is like relevant to sort of where we're coming from in the life mm -hmm. on this work. And that's almost like the sub spiritual connection to nature. And yeah. we are so disconnected from it here. Absolutely. Like the, I found even we've, so we've just moved house and there's an apple tree and even just seeing that shoot up and grow and my son will look at it and seeing a robin there is feels far more connected we had a you know we had there's a shared garden before but like it is really hard to go and hear these things and actually feel physically and emotionally engaged with it at least for me there'll be a lot of other people who will you know feel these things really deeply so then how do you, when trying to communicate this stuff, like how do you go and as a science communicator, try to help people connect emotionally to it? What I, what I really try and do is I really try and bring it home. I mean, there, there, there are two reasons to listen to me. <laughs> um, one of which is totally selfish. You want a better body. You want to be healthier. You don't want to have diabetes. Read this book follow these things and I and I pretty much guarantee you you will you will lead a healthier life which will mean fewer medical interventions and I guarantee you having been at the sharp end of the research of this you do not want more medical interventions in your life 
I worked for a clinical journal looking at you know the, the, the leading clinical questions of our time. And I can see the, the most recent up-to-date amazing research that's done for all of these conditions. And it's amazing what people can do, but it would be so much better not to have to do it at all. And that's where this food intervention comes in. But the, and, that, and that for some people and for many people, in, in a strange way, actually, to, to bring it back to what we were talking about earlier, there are these two things, right? There's diet culture, which is do it for yourself. And then there's religion, which is do it for a higher purpose. And I like to think that really there's both those elements in this, in what I'm advocating, because you can do it solely for your own health. And that will be for some people a sufficient motivation. And then there'll be other people who, who you know, derive a great deal of pleasure from food. And I hope sincerely that what I'm advocating doesn't take away from that. But if, if, you, der if you derive pleasure from food, you're not gonna want to make compromises um, based on, based on uh, your, own, your own needs because you'll say it's okay. I take these risks. I'm happy. I want to eat the burger. I, the pleasure that I derive from eating the burger outweighs the potential risks that I see further down the line. But they might be the same people that, you know, look out on the world and see that the UK's, you know, green spaces are diminishing and that their kids don't understand what an oak tree is because they've never experienced one. And they'll, I think that will resonate with them. I found it really interesting actually when I was writing it, once I started looking for examples of how profoundly we engage with nature. And I was thinking about the fact that every single screensaver or, and, and, and a lot of the art that we have are of natural scenes. So you go into an office and you just see all of these screens showing a different beach, forest, mountain backdrop. And it's what we all want to connect to. And we're all there working, but we get like that 0.2 seconds of, ah, oh, nature before we log on and I thought that was really telling that actually we all kind of have that desire and we all you know when when you go on holiday the majority of us seek out some kind of natural beauty sometimes you'll go on a city break but if it's for longer you tend to go to places of, of profound natural beauty um we need to preserve that I think it's I think what would it can you imagine if we if it was like where are you going on holiday and the answer is well nowhere it's all the same that would be really difficult. Where where do we start? Like what if you're someone like me who doesn't really plan too much about what they're eating, I'll eat whatever's in the fridge if it's there or order out if there's nothing there. I don't have like a food schedule or food routine. What's the the first stop for for someone like me? So I write about this because I, because I needed this exactly the same I needed to think about this because I'm exactly the same as you. Um, yeah, well, shit, you know, rubbish. Yeah, exactly. Bad just just <laughs> terrible. Yeah, totally, totally awful, totally awful human. Uh, and I created this sort of rough idea of the three rules rule, which is in itself a bit redundant. But basically, eat more colorfully. That's an easy rule to follow. So if you if you realize that you've been eating beige food a lot, the chances are you're eating stuff that's a lot more processed and not that great for you. So try and get color in your diet. Because if you're getting color in your diet, you're pretty generally eating more fruit and veg. And that's the, that's the number one thing. Um, so get, get more color in your diet, except when it comes to carbohydrates and then try and go brown. So try, instead of eating white rice, try and eat whole grain rice. Pretty simple. Instead of buying the white King's Mill, no offense to King's Mill, who we really are picking on during this podcast, try, try and get wholemeal King's Mill instead. That kind of thing. Anti-King's Mill agenda. Yeah. No, 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 but I'm saying, I'm, <laughs> I started um, it, but everyone's jumping on. This guy's a, he's a who, king. Who knew he's there was got so a much mill. Yeah, who knew there was so much <laughs> latent uh, hatred, right? Um, and then finally, try and make meat a treat. And that rhymes, so you know it must be right. So instead of it, so say you want a curry, it's a long day and you want to get takeout curry. Great, go for it. Get takeout curry. How much does chicken in your curry really add to that dish? You're getting it for the, for, the, for the flavor and the sauce. You're getting it to spoon it over rice. Why not get it with, why not get a vegetarian curry? Why not get a tofu curry? It doesn't really make a huge difference, but I'm not, but I'm not saying never have steak again. I'm saying get a really great steak, really enjoy that. And that's this idea of applying a layer of mindfulness onto it. And almost all of us do. I think we all think about the choices that we eat a little bit. Like it just depends on your perspective. So. I'm a lady, so I need, to, you know, I, I need, that was a boring Freudian slip. I tend to watch what I eat in terms of weight and health and all that bollocks. 
some men do that as well but other people by the way um, i like the way you put in the bollocks because you may be feeling a bit guilty about i need and you went yeah. i need you went oh no what what diets me no way yeah I'll no exactly a, i just drink yeah. white wine what, what, yeah what? yeah <laughs> exactly it's all fine it, it, you know it's like that metaphor of a duck right going smoothly on the surface and paddling like the hell underneath <laughs> you know um, in terms of what you eat but we all we all tend to think about food with certain things so like you're saying with if you're religious you eat you think about food in a certain way um, if you're on any kind of specialist diet, you apply that kind of mindfulness level to it. Um, even if it's just like what's really tasty, you have that sort of meta level of cognition, which we apply to it. And I don't think it's that difficult to apply this, this is as part of your normal ways of thinking about food. Um, so I'd say that, but I'd say that those, those three ideas, eat more colorfully, pick brown carbohydrates if you can, and eat less meat, meat eat and have and enjoy it as a treat. Are probably the easiest ways of going about making changes it was as you were talking you uh reminded me of that bit in your book when you said that when you were writing about these foods even the ones you shouldn't eat you then wanted to eat them more yeah and as you were talking and you're like going you know the the chicken doesn't really make a difference and there's a bit of me which is like to go yeah but it does and so why <laughs> does <laughs> Why does that chicken taste so good? And so anyway, that's just me reflecting on even in a podcast where I want to be encouraged into having a better diet. There's a bit of me which is still, you know, thinking this. And I guess there is a part where if I go and reflect on that, I don't want to complicate it too much. The, there's a great Daniel Kitson show, well, only to preserve me because I, I like eating it and I don't really want to think about the horrors that are involved in uh, making it the sort of impact that it has because compared to a tofu curry it's marginally nicer but if i keep on doing it the planet will be destroyed that choice should be easy and so i want to keep my thoughts slightly uncomplicated about it but it maybe is that thing of like we've you know we've got to think about these things and there's reminds me of actually another guest we had who she was a neuroscientist and she says that you've got to try to one way around it is to really try to help your cognitive uh the cognitive part of your brain come up with loads of great ideas to do it and then also to make it just taste worse by thinking of all of the bad things associated and she says like write down 50 reasons like looking at like financially looking at what it's done to the earth thinking what it'll do to your family and so you really so that when you have it you're a bit like was uh, it was it really this great was it yeah, really and, what, and, yeah and then it does genuinely taste nicer no, <laughs> no it tastes worse. wow it there's tastes worse. nothing that's getting you off this chicken curry is there <laughs> no, no. sansons a lost cause yeah, yeah. it tastes nicer because it's wrong uh, yeah. No, it tastes worse because you start to have these uh, in the same way that if you were like had been given some really bad news and then was served a delicious meal, it wouldn't taste as good because you have got complicated things going on in your brain. Absolutely. Uh, the, the other thing I would say is don't underestimate the power of habit because we all we all eat. I mean, if I were to ask you to name every single meal that you ate every day, you know, within a week, chances are there'd be some or over a month. You'd you'd replicate it quite a bit because we all we're all thinking about so many other things all at the same time. It's difficult to constantly be like, oh, today, you know, unless you're like, like Nigella Lawson or something, you're going to repeat stuff. And so one of the things that I've tried to do is incorporate meals into my sort of normal repertoire that I just cook as standard that don't involve any meat and, and, and involve, you know, the other, you know, the other tenants that I set out. Um, and that's a really easy way of just not having to have the fight at all. So that you're not thinking, oh, but I really want a burger. The burger isn't even on the table. It's not really an option because you're, you know, you're having a squash curry and or that's and that's fine. Or, you know, you're having a, a Greek salad or and it's just and, and it's not. And that way you're not you're not constantly having a fight with yourself and feeling deprived because you're not having X. You're just having Y and Y is great. And that's and, and, and that's all there is to it. Um, and if you start to habituate yourself into that, then you it's just easier. There's a less of a cognitive load that you carry with it every every time i found and this is sort of quite very oh god you know when you find yourself you have to say am i gonna say something super boring do not write in podcast listeners to say that that thought does not always stop me talking but uh the uh, <laughs> hardly but, ever stops you talking uh, does it the, uh, let's be honest 
but as an adult often you just start to be but i like get interested in things that previously you would have been like what on earth are you doing but like like genuinely doing a big shop like doing a shop and so you'll get it so you're actually thinking these are going to be the things that i will eat means that you are like getting something for thursday not when you're like busy stressed whatever it might be absolutely uh, but you've already you've already got it yeah one of the thing one of the other things i recommend is that you try and shop veg first not meat first so before i used to go and do a big sh like i don't have a car so i would walk to my local sainsbury's and get like a chicken and some sausages and then i've got local shops around me that can do vegetables so i used to kind of think okay now i've got chicken so what am i going to do with that so i don't do that anymore um and i i don't i don't I, what i do is i go to my local veg shop and i buy a cauliflower and some courgettes and some aubergines and yada 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 and then i bring it all home and then i think oh what can i cook with these um or or i actually i've become that person and i get a veg box delivered every couple of weeks and it's kind and, and i hate to say it it's great because it's changing stuff so i don't know what's in there and it's always like a challenge it's like what the hell is this and how do i eat it it's something called knock knock by smith and brock they do this they start they started during lockdown because they had like loads of food which was left over that was delivered for restaurants i can see james's face i don't know if you know it it's like is it like your veg box or something no i've never heard of it but i loved that it rhymed i just yeah. thought that was a cute name <laughs> yeah it's I really don't, cute i don't want to sort of pull rank on you but we get odd box and that's for the vegetables which are like not selected because they're not perfect and... odd box won't deliver to me oh. because i don't have i don't have somewhere where they can leave the box okay so i have I was, tried actually i'm about I was to, hoping I'm, to like go and be able to have no i felt guilty I've about had... talking about my love of chicken and how i'm an awful <laughs> human i was hoping to one-up you with my more I've had ethical detailed, vegetable I had box. detailed emails with with odd with oh. odd box the lovely customer services people at Oddbox, and because of the way they deliver their odd box i they can't but i'm going to move house quite soon just then, to get that yeah it yep. was expensive but worth it you know? <laughs> 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 what dedication to the cause yes I, I was trying to trump your box True believer. but you have trumped me right back uh the uh cassandra we've got to the end of this interview it has been a delight uh the uh please tell people where they can get your book and where they can find you online oh thank you well it's been lovely being on the show so thank you so much for having me um enough is available where all good books are sold um including amazon but also support your local independent bookshop which should have copies of it and um i'm online at, at cas coburn on twitter although if i'm honest i don't tweet very much i'm not very good at social media um but read my journal which is the lancer healthy longevity which should be accessible to pretty much everyone that's great read my journal <laughs> sounds like you're like oh well everyone invited back to look at your like, yeah oh, my no, etchings no, 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 read, no read your journal <laughs> read your medical journal okay we get that hey thanks so much I loved that. I thought that there was so much we discussed. I mean, I was a little worried when we first opened the conversation, be like, how does this fit in to what we're talking about? But it really does because food is so personal and it's such a massive part of who we are and how we, I don't know, how we relate to our own bodies. And it's also bound up with a lot of things we talk frequently about on the podcast about, um, making routines and rituals and the meanings of things that we do every day. And it was very helpful for me because I'm just terrible with food. Like I'm not thoughtful about it in the way that Cassandra suggested that we should be. And so I really appreciated her, you know, encouraging me to think in a better way about what I eat. I think that is a load of good points and the the closeness of food to who we are is something again it's weird that we didn't think that it was more directly linked to us like food yeah. w would be the most important thing like in uh you know in, for humans right it's what gets us through and yet we no longer necessarily see it as that and at the same time like one of the reasons that we were sort of sort of edging around that question of obesity is because it's so sensitive. Yes, right? it's very There's, personal. You know, it's so personal. And, you know, the and to everyone listening, that I mean, that is from 
you know, from my point of view, a scientific point that I was making, I take fully on board that it is so personal. It then connects to our bodies and, you know, how other people see them. And so like this whole examination of food is so important. And I go and think about it in my own life. And, and it's something that I'm sort of coming back to, like, what, you know, what will it take to go and take more of this on board? I thought of, uh, I've, in my little studio here, I was like, and I think about what I want to add to it, the things which are important. And I was thinking, yeah, what can be some little symbol or something to go and, you know, go and connect me to the world more and connect me to, you know, what I eat more because, yeah, like what 8 billion people put in their mouths in large part decide the fate of our planet. Well, you know what I'm going to do after our conversation, Sanderson? Uh, we get in my home a weekly meal delivery box because it's just Colton and me. So doing a big shop for just us two is sometimes feels a bit weird. And then we kind of mm. end up not using things that we've bought. But we get these blue apron deliveries, which is three meals a week for just us. And you have there's always vegetarian options. And I think I might ask Colton if we switch over to having just the vegetarian versions of everything for a while to see how that feels yeah or even two out of three so you're not like going crazy yeah right i don't or go the whole way that's just my own take I, on these things i think i'm gonna do that i'm gonna ask yeah. him if he would be down for that and i'll report back on the podcast whether we did it don't don't ask just do it and just see his little face drop <laughs> no he likes he's much my husband is the model of people who's very careful about what they eat very like doesn't keep eating when they're full whereas if i've got food in front of me i'll eat it it just doesn't mm. matter how i feel I'll just eat it um he's much better at this stuff than me he weighs himself every day he's he's better at routines and stuff like that in general so i'm trying to learn from him i feel like with our powers combined we could be the perfect human <laughs> i love the the running theme in this podcast that the two of us leaders of congregations happen to be married to people who in many ways are just far more on it and together. Uh, so we're going to take, take from that what you will, uh, dude, uh, absolute pleasure to do with this with you. Uh, see you next week and in between, I'm sure. If you're smart, you've figured out that there's actually more after James. I've suddenly realized that we say goodbye to Cassandra. Then we go and say goodbye to James and you've got to figure out that after two goodbyes, there's still more. And what we do at the end here is just want to go and talk about what's happening in the community. And it is really exciting. We have got a sort of new small group starting. There's been demand from the community to not just uh, have the small groups, but then to uh, like have some place online to talk. And I know that sounds quite unremarkable. Everyone's got a Slack channel you can join but, you know, this has come from people wanting to stay in touch with folk that they've met online. And it's really exciting, those little, you know, little steps. Uh, what else is going on in the life on this universe? There's one very exciting thing, which is on the, well, it's just on the back burner. It's not yet on the front burner. Is it on the back burner? No, the back burner means it, you've just like pushed it to the side. Where is it? What, which burner? It's just over the horizon. Maybe we can go in that direction. Fingers crossed, fingers crossed. I really want it to come good because it is really could have a big impact on, you know, spreading the idea of lifefulness because what we want to do is show that there's a way of building community, which comes from like looking at churches and saying, and mosques and synagogues and spiritual communities of all types uh, and saying, what can we learn from these? How can we go and like help create communities like this, not just at work, but uh, not just in the community, not just in the community, but also at work. Yeah, that's what we're all about. How can we do this uh, only for B2B audiences so that we can create more engagement over a new remote workforce was asking more and more at the workplace. We're not interested in doing it in the community. We want to do it for big corporate. No, uh, we also do want to do that because we want to help uh, people uh, really wherever they are. Uh, and so, yeah, there's something around this little project which could come together around like developing the evidence base for lifefulness. And it's really exciting. 
I'm sitting, not recording this, but uh, I'm now sitting in a sort of like putting together a studio. For me, stuff like building studios takes a long time. You know what? I think it takes a long time for anyone. Uh, uh, there's it's in a spare bedroom uh, upstairs. And so we've got the, the guest bedroom and I've gone and bought lights. And they seem to really seem overkill if you're used to, if you're not used to having like proper studio lights or what have you. Uh, and then to keep them out of the way of the day to day, there's just all of these lights around a bed, uh, and it just looks as though, you know, we're into filming ourselves, uh, having a very good time. So that's uh, and and my mother-in-law came to say, and that's what she was greeted with. I mean, it's not a not a great sight when you go and stay with your uh, with your daughter and her son. What, what, what's she thinking? Uh, oh, also surrounding the bed because we're painting it. There's also. Uh, there's also like paint sheets, you know, like, and we've got plastic ones. So it looks not only like we're going to film uh, sex, but also like there's either going to be very liquidy. It's going to be a lot of moisture coming out. Or we're going to kill someone. So but none of that's happening. I'm building a studio. So there, yeah, these are just the little things which are happening. We've got a new small group started. I think that's where I started off this. So uh, we're getting there. That's uh me running out of uh, running out of steam. Just want to say, uh, yeah, thanks so much for listening to here. Uh, really appreciate it. Really appreciate like everyone who listens. Uh, huge love to you, uh, and we're you know we're really sort of putting the things in place. So hopefully we can go from spoken word in your ears to helping you get connected in Poison. So that's it. Thanks for listening. Thanks for James Croft my uh podcast bestie thanks so much dude uh thanks for mavs the uh wonderful producer who's going to go and uh, make this audio sort of really pop for you uh thanks to who else uh thanks to will andrews for making the artwork and to roman rapak and miro shot for laying down this sweet sweet music that you're listening to right now